Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Liz Kelly. We wanted to remind you to check out the Ringer's YouTube page. We're publishing new original videos all the time, including a new This Is Us parody called This Is Bus, featuring some of your favorite Ringer employees like Bill Simmons, Jason Concepcion, and Chris Ryan. And on Friday, we published a video breaking down the staff's favorite moments of 2018 in sports and pop culture, ranging from A Star is Born to the Philadelphia Flyers mascot, Gritty. These videos and more can be found at youtube.com slash The Ringer. David, the Trump White House announced it's not going to have a Christmas party for the media this year. Uh, Yeah, what I want to know is if the party had happened... What kinds of scenes and goings-on do you hope would have taken place at the White House Christmas party for the media? (laughs) Jerome Corsi, like, just scarfing down shrimp in the corner? Okay, that one's fine. Yes, yes. I was like, this is the the don't get fired segment of the podcast. Um, (laughs) As opposed to all the other ones? Yeah. Uh, I'm waiting Um, for the get fired segment of the podcast, but go ahead. Yeah, no, I mean, it would be really interesting to to, to see how many people were availing themselves of an o- of the open bar and how many were just crouching in corners with their notepads yeah. taking note of the people who were availing themselves of the open bar. This might be the least fun White House Christmas party ever only because everybody in the room is reporting out their book that they've already signed a deal for <laughs> on the Trump White House. Yeah, it's like Ryan Liz and Olivia Nuzzi kind of like with a big notepad open, you know, right in the yeah. opening scene. Taking turns. You go over there and talk to this person. I will mark down everything that happens during the conversation. In the other quarter, there's like a game change 2020 that's that's forming that we don't even know about, you know? It's like that. If they had the White House Christmas party for journalists and Trump and the entire White House staff promised to attend for the entire time and mingle, and they live-streamed it on the internet. Do you think we could pay off the national debt with the amount of money that we brought in? <laughs> Definitely more than the Tiger and Phil pay-per-view. I think so, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, we would do better than that. We are the pigs in a blanket of media podcasting. This is the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. The Press Box is the media podcast where if you work for a national publication, you're not allowed to generate a top 10 list of the stories you wrote. We saw them. Thank you. We are Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker of The Ringer. Three topics today for you, David. First, we'll recount the recent flap at the New York Times over right-wing extremism and the power of headlines. Second, we'll talk about Trump's new war on Saturday Night Live. And finally, access journalism is defended and then attacked, we look at the unseemly practice of talking to your subjects. Plus, as always, the overworked Twitter joke of the week. But first, David, let's start with right-wing extremism. Last week, the New York Times podcast, The Daily, the upper middle brow pod hosted by Michael Barbaro, published an episode called The Rise of Right-Wing Extremism and How We Missed It. And they were doing that sort of too cute headline thing where you try to make people more interested in a story by using the second person to rope them all in. Sort of like in the vein of Esquire's Women We Love. Remember that one? (laughs) This did not go over so well on Twitter uh, with a bunch of people, including Adam Serwer, Jamil Smith, Wang in, Charlie Pierce over at Esquire writes, so there were those of us who saw where this had been heading for 30-odd years and who are not surprised at all that the current president was its inevitable product. And we also take seriously his statement on Wednesday that if he is impeached, the people will revolt. He wants them to do so, his people anyway, We shouldn't be shocked at all by this. I saw this whole kerfuffle as a couple of, and it's our mandatory use of kerfuffle on this podcast, Mm -hmm. but as a couple of interlocking issues. 
The first was the Times, the New York Times, already having one demerit in the right-wing extremism department, at least one, which was that piece last year by Richard Fawcett about the Nazi sympathizer in Ohio. You remember that? That was deemed tonally wrong and sort of way too sympathetic. There was also a Media Matters piece I noticed by Christina Lopez-G, who says uh, that in 2009, this big report on the radicalization of right-wing extremists at the Times did not cover it terribly well and in, in fact cut more was more interested in covering the conservative f- anger about the report mm-hmm. so that's part of it right i think the second part of it is the <laughs> michael barbaro has weirdly become a you know lightning rod of media twitter mm-hmm. which i guess goes back to that subway tweet from 2014 yeah right yeah I think that you're right. I mean, I think that it has a lot to do with the daily and I and and both and people's both their their fascination and their and their uh, discomfort's not the right word, but sort of like a comfort with uh, with <laughs> with what the space the daily occupies. Is it just that I it's mean, good and slickly produced? Is that the problem, or is it just kind of too timesy? What's what's the? Well, I think it's. I mean, some of it's podcasts in general, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, every all of the. I mean, it's how many times have you heard somebody in the media say like? you know, in the middle of a conversation about how good a podcast was, just be like, oh yeah, well, you know, I wrote that piece four years ago at the Atlantic. They didn't even give me any credit. You know, I mean, (laughs) there's just because like podcasting is a new, is a new ground and like by almost, I mean, a new media, almost by definition, uh, like, you know, heavily produced um, journalistic podcasts are going to cover some ground um, that's been covered before in a sort of like eyes wide open, mouth agape sort of way, right? I mean, that's the it, 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 you're you're reaching a new audience, and that's sort of the point. Yeah. That said, you know, my longstanding critique of the you know the sort of pinnacles of the form, the 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 prestige stuff. Like, I mean, I, I think I think the bad lesson that that like serial season one taught the world about podcasting is that what you really need is like three quarters of a reported piece and an artful shrug to, to wrap it up, you know, I mean, and that's, and, and even though this episode of the daily was like a thoroughly reported piece and based on reportage, yeah, it still clings to that artful shrug as like, a, as like a, a means of expression, right? At the end, it's just sort of like, how could we have known? Or, and they had that, that yeah. montage of like, of, of right wing of news reports of right wing, you know, atrocities, um, uh, and, and it's just sort of like, I, it, this seems, feels like maybe one of those things that we don't need to kind of uh, prettify. We don't need to, we don't need to gussy it up in post-production. It's just sort of speaks for itself. So the artful shrug is in the headline or starts in the headline here. Yeah. Where it's just kind of a tick of podcasting and that's what's driving us all up the wall. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And that sort of goes back to that sort of, you know, universal serial NPR voice that everybody but the two of us has apparently adopted on podcasts. We just don't have the skill for it. Otherwise, we... No, I think that's that's absolutely true. And listen, I think that part of what people... I mean, you hear this every time The Daily comes up. It's this sort of like... it's There's a great tension between this is the greatest podcast that's ever existed and... Well, whatever the flip side of that tension is, it's like, well, here, here's it. Here, here's the way that they're not a good journalistic enterprise. Here's a way that they're not a good perform. You know, a, a good, um, it was entertainment form. You know, I mean, it, there, there's they they walk a fine they, they walk a fine line there. I mean, it, it speaks to the to the really good work that they do. Yeah, it's it's almost it's not that different than the kind of reflexive hating of the Times itself, right? 
Mm-hmm. You know, that's a good point. We, we recognize this is good. We recognize this is like kind of in a way, you know, a, on the in the pantheon, a pinnacle of the form, however you want to say it. But we also just feel like, you know, we should not only subject this to higher standards, but we should just kind of hate on it as a matter of course. Yeah, and you know, it's not, for you know, sure. You don't for get sure. any points for praising an episode of the Daily on Twitter, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. If the exact same thing had been produced by Gimlet Media, there would be people falling over themselves to, I mean, the headline be damned to, uh, or title be damned to, uh, to praise it. Yeah, it does. It does feel. I mean, this was when I when I saw that Leon Nafak tweet from a couple weeks ago, which I think we meant to talk about and never did, uh-huh. where he compared podcasting in the here in the teens to uh, working in magazines in the '60s, film in the '70s, and TV in the early aughts. Mm-hmm. And said it was just thrilling, and that was in that I think was one <laughs> got had kind of a nice run on in the uh, Twitter dunking booth. Mm. You know, we're just against podcast giddiness. We're against the we're against the shrug and the ticks, and we're also just now against giddiness of podcasting. Yeah, that it's just it's just sort of it just feels like that that moment is is become tiresome right we as we plan our own narrative podcast that we hope becomes the next slow burn or serial we are also reflexively against uh talking about podcasting and and the ne- and using the phrase the next slow burn or the next serial <laughs> something like that yeah i think that's probably true the other thing kind of mixed in all this is is a discussion you and i have had a couple times i feel which is just the power of headlines in the Twitter yes. era. Yes. And so I listen to this podcast, not somebody who listens to the daily um, daily or weekly even, but this actual podcast is not how we, this kind of racialized, gendered, we missed right-wing terrorism. It is very specifically about how U.S. law enforcement missed right-wing terrorism. And, it's and, ba- based, and, they, and they subsequently changed the headline to reflect that. Yeah, and it's it's based on this, you know, that cover story that Janet Reitman wrote for the Times Magazine last month. Here's here's a clip just to give people a sense of this, of Reitman talking about what happened uh, after the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995. And so after Oklahoma City, the FBI and the DOJ, they sent FBI agents into the field to infiltrate various militia groups, they arrested people, and they kind of succeeded in driving the far right to some degree underground. And then 9-11 happens. And then what happens after that is Robert Mueller, who was then FBI director, and other senior national security officials across the entire government, they direct all of their agents to focus their energies on this new mission, which is countering Islamic extremism abroad and in the United States. And people aren't talking about Timothy McVeigh anymore. No. The entire national security apparatus is focused on preventing another September 11th. So, as you can hear from that clip, this is actually, this podcast is actually, this episode is actually legit and focused on exactly what you would want it to be focused on. Mm-hmm. But it's the headline that drives us all to distraction. And yeah. I and I find this just keeps happening. We've kind of seen the version of this with like the Reuters when it's like Trump colon Hillary is a crook, you know, and everybody gets really mad. And then if you just re- if you click through, it's just like fine, you know, just like a normal wire report, you know. Yes. But I, I guess I go back and forth on this because all, the criticism, including this time, is almost always right. 
And yet I sort of wonder, is like, does any, is any, is that headline and that sort of pull quote on Twitter really driving in anything? Is it actually that important? You know, I don't, I don't mind and have no problem with the sort of dog pile, but I'm also like, does it really, does anybody care that much? You know, does this, is this changing the way we process these things? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, I, th- I mean, I think it matters. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's, you know, whenever, whenever this happens, you know, it, it's sort of a race to see whether, um, you know, kind of what takes over Twitter first, whether it's the, the, you know, anger at the headline or, or, you know, it, it's a race between that and the, whatever magazine editor tweets out, Hey guys, sometimes these, these decisions are made in the office and they, you know, it's not the writer's fault. And if that gets retweeted <laughs> enough times before the the anger takes hold, then maybe it, 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 it sort of soothes the savage beast or whatever. But, um, I think it does matter. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy to, to say that it doesn't, right? I mean, otherwise what's the, the point of headlines or, but, and, and it does shape the way that we shape the way that we read. I mean, I, you know, you, I think we all know from working, I mean, we, you and I both know working on the, you know, this end of, of, you know, of publishing that if you read, if you read a Google doc without a title on it, your, your perception of it is going to be totally different than if, than, than when you read something with a headline in a printed publication. Yeah. I guess my question is when it's something like this, what it's like, the headline is off. Mm-hmm. It, the, the headline is not wrong. It's just off and tonally kind of dumb. But then well, the actual product is fine and actually yes. pretty interesting. Yeah. I think that what that does is <laughs> it opens up the door for criticism from every direction, right? As opposed to it just kind of being, I think what you say is exactly right. But then what you get as a response are, are the people who, regardless of the content of the podcast, see an opportunity to address, to, to take issue with the title or with the argument of the title. Um, and that ends up drowning everything else out. All the all the good is sort of drowned out by, you know, people who who can claim that they were aware of this for the past ten years, or you know, the people who were, who were not blind to the rise of right wing extremism. Yeah, and it, and you know, and again, like this one is like particular. This headline has particular resonance because you know, if you were in groups that were were and are terrorized by right wing extremists. Nazi sympathizers, actual Nazis, et cetera, et cetera, then it is, it is sort of offensive. It's just funny because yeah. I think, you know, people, there's this kind of reflexive thing for a lot of people. They say, oh, the, you know, media criticism is so shitty now on Twitter and everything is, people leap on you and all that stuff. I actually, I actually don't think that's true. I think it's, it's just really hyper efficient now. <laughs> and it, it is really good at quickly pointing out the soft spots of a piece or a headline. And mm-hmm. it's it's so efficient that it's like, you know, the drop of blood goes in the water and here come the school of piranhas. But it's yeah. rarely wrong, exactly. Um, it's just a like, you know, like, oh my gosh, you know, <laughs> it's just like, whoa. Yeah. And then you, and then you, like I said, you sort of listen to the thing. But this is, it's so funny because I do feel like we've had as many media fights about headlines and pull quotes and, you know, wire service sort of deadpan wire service Trump quotes than we have as about actual stories in 2018. Yeah. Well, those things are easier to, I mean, they, they, they're more uh, potent when you screen grab those and put them on Twitter. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and than, look, than, than a paragraph with a highlighted sentence or whatever. You also, know? by the way, as a press critic, you love a clean hit, you know, mm-hmm. a clean hit is better than a complicated hit. 
And right. so that's nice too. By the way, also the the weird irony here is there remember a couple of years ago when everybody was like in 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 internet land, headline the art of headline writing is dead because it's all about SEO now and you mm-hmm. really want functional clear headlines rather than uh you know Frank Sinatra has a cold. And now it's like that may still be true artistically, but actually the headline writing turns out to be wildly important. Oh, it's still very important. That's no, I think, but I think it's more important because, you know, we, I mean, it's not that it wasn't important before we talked about fighting the wimp factor with George H.W. Bush the other day, but on the cover of Newsweek, but like now, like that can just get you just murdered on Twitter in this very, again, this very hyper efficient way. And people aren't wrong. So anyway, that's funny. All right, David, time for the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. I did not have a ton of stuff this week. Um, some stuff, uh, Joaquin Nagel sent us the uh, thing from the other day when Kevin Hart withdrew from the Oscars and a bunch of people <laughs> tweeted, y'all won. And I just feel if I try to explain that joke, I will seem like the squarest person on planet Earth even more <laughs> than I already do. So anyway, thank you, Joaquin. Noted. Ditto uh, David Mulhern sending in the Donald Trump smocking gun tweet from the other day, <laughs> which accidentally <laughs> mirrored a bit that Trill Bollins does. Again, I just, well, I, I've already, I already sound square, so we're good. Thank you. We're just the noted, it checked off the list. Um, I did want to reach back to this one from November. Did you see Reggie Bush's anti-vaxxer tweet? That's <laughs> a sentence I thought I'd never say. Oh Reggie gosh, Bush's no. anti-vaxxer curious tweet. He says, I've been reading and watching videos on flu vaccinations and other vaccinations for kids and the dangers of them and the side effects. What do you guys think about this stuff? Are you for it or against it? Um, <laughs> you do remember, of course, David, when Reggie Bush was a running back at USC, the dumb NCAA scandal um, that involved that retroactively involved them losing a bunch of wins that they had actually won on the field. Anyway, it was an overworked Twitter joke to say Reggie must have thought USC had to vaccinate the wins, not vacate them. That's uh, thanks to <laughs> Nicholas Dubon. I believe he uh, nominated himself. But really, an overworked uh, Twitter joke Christmas miracle, David. Brooksgate. Uh, the trade Friday between the Suns, Grizzlies, and what Joe House calls the Wizards fell apart uh, because of a dispute over which player named Brooks had been traded from the Grizzlies to the Suns. As our own uh, Paulo Getty put it, the Suns thought they were getting Dylan Brooks and the Grizzlies thought they were sending Marshawn Brooks. Uh, that was a huge moment in Twitter. Keith Olbermann said maybe they meant sports by Brooks. Zach Lowe over to ESPN, our old pal, said if someone on the Wiz of the Grids has a Mel Brooks autographed photo, that could grease the wheels of this trade. It's also a good line. Somebody said tra- the trade was canceled when the Suns found out they were getting Doc Rivers instead of Austin Rivers. That was kind of the second level joke. And our boss, Bill, said, <laughs> mournfully tweeting the next day, I wasn't online <laughs> for the whole Brooks jokes things. Please respect me and my family's privacy during these trying times. Thanks to Taha Hasen, Isaac Chips, and Dan Murphy for sending that in. All right, David. Topic number two. The uh, Sunday morning, Donald Trump was on his uh, Twitter race car to the finish line. By the way, he is, it's been an amazing week for Trump tweets. Still happening as we record this on Tuesday morning. Uh, But here he was on Sunday morning. A real scandal is one-sided coverage hour by hour of networks like NBC and Democrat spin machines like Saturday Night Live. It is all nothing less than unfair news coverage and dim commercials should be tested in courts. Can't be legal. Only defame and belittle exclamation point collusion question mark. 
Um, Jeffrey St. Clair of Counterpunch tweeted, will he attack Murphy Brown next? <laughs> any, um, uh, any opening thoughts on Donald Trump versus Saturday Night Live? Well, on the one hand, I feel like the Murphy Brown thing, the Murphy Brown joke, while funny, uh, undersells what Trump was doing there. You know, I mean, it's one of these, uh, we, we go through these, you know, Trump tirades all the time. Uh, you know, at some point, you kind of have to take him at his word if you want to have a discussion about it, right? So, yeah. I mean, he's talking about, you know. Collusion. Collusion. <laughs> um, but, on, the but on the other Saturday hand. Night Live. Yeah. So, I mean, the, yeah, the Murphy Brown thing, I, you know, this is, this is way worse than saying like, you know, there's SNL is setting a bad example for our kids. Yeah. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, I'm not sure that you could really, you know, land a neater jab to Trump's chin than to just compare him to Dan Quayle. I mean, I, I'm sure that probably, probably, that probably has a lot of relevance for, I mean, a lot of resonance for him. Um, um, but who knows if he would have, you know, if if he's if he was aware that he even did anything um, questionable. I mean, it's just so, it's just so wild. It's just so wild. I mean, that you would, it, it, you have to you have to now give an entirely new reading to everything he's ever said or written about collusion because it's because this is like the <laughs> you know the proof you were looking for that he doesn't understand what the word means. Well, that's his best rhetorical gambit, right? It's just to sort of use collusion. Which mm-hmm. is being investigated between the Trump campaign and the Russians, and use it in the context of Saturday Night Live and Chuck Schumer. I mean, I don't know who is colluding with whom, right? But yes. just to devalue the words so much and make them into it's like you know, I mean, that's like such a Trump thing, right? It's like you know who colludes. What about that Saturday Night Live? It's like no, no, we're talking about undermining the American electoral system here. Not like I didn't like this sketch, but yeah, then you use the c word and. That sort of becomes a thing. Also, <laughs> also, it's just like if you know the other Trump tactic. This is clearly a part of is something bad is happening for me, which in this case is Michael Cohen, uh, Michael Flynn today as we record this, et cetera, et cetera. And so, I'm going to just attack something and try to bring somebody else into this arena uh, to distract people as much as possible. <laughs> do you think? Do you think Trump? Here's here's my question for you. Here's actually who cares about all that. Here's what I actually none of us watch Saturday Night Live anymore, right? Nobody. nobody actually, on, why? I, my, my, no, 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 no. Uh, I watched. I watched this week the day after. Weirdly, because I heard because someone said something nice about the uh, about some of Matt Damon stuff. But in my household, um, we have been watching. We've been watching this season's reruns this week. Weirdly, it just just in, a, in an amazing bit of serendipity. I'm okay, very so on, up but on, on time delay. Oh not, yeah, not not sitting down at eleven thirty on Saturday night, right? Yeah, so I mean that's so that's the first question is does Trump consume Saturday Night Live like everybody else, which is he waits till the next morning and sees what the funny sketches were? <laughs> no, I think he watches it. I you think, think, I think he, is I, Trump? Trump think, doesn't seem like a DVR guy, right? He certainly doesn't seem like he uses Twitter in the sense of like here's I'm looking for funny content from last night, right? No, I don't think he does DVR. He seems more like the kind of guy that would like that would you know. Whereas, like his employees or his yeah, his assistants will like put on Fox and Friends on record the moment you know whenever he's watching TV, and then he yells about it not being on the next day at the same time. Yeah, but that but yeah, and he's he's not DVRing anything. You and I, I don't think side with Donald Trump about anything. But if he had used this tweet to attack the Weezer sketch, would you have finally sided with <laughs> Donald Trump on something? <laughs> I might have. I might have. 
I mean, if we're gonna if we're gonna knock Trump for being old fashioned, can we also just address, even though this is like so old ha- old hat, but can we can we address the tweet style? I mean, he he's he seems to be getting better at getting better at times, and I know that he doesn't always write his own tweets, but just the syntax of this of this tweet, anti SNL tweet, yeah, uh, it is nothing less than unfair news coverage and dim commercials. Period should be tested in court. This it, this it, for some reason it reminded me of when they were like uh, of like the scene in in the Three Amigos where they're trying to send a telegram and save money. <laughs> like Trump doesn't understand that like you can just write as much as you want on Twitter now. But yeah. it, it's just like should be tested in courts. Can't be legal. Stop. Only defame and belittle. Stop. Collusion. Stop. Like it's it's the it, it's. Uh, it's sort of it's sort of wild. Like it like to in an effort to save to save letters, he has made the most befuddling attack in the history of Twitter. It's very, very strange. I also love the random ampersand always thrown in. <laughs> he could have just written and <laughs> that's very like defaming very, and belittling is is a, is a call is it calls for I mean you can is, is you know you can call that collusion. It's just absolutely just wacky. Random wacky. ampersand is like mom email too for I us know. i feel just like I kind know. of there's a normal sentence going and then all of a sudden there's an ampersand in the middle of it yeah, that's always totally kind of funny. right it's but, also we should also point out that this is that like this is just an, an insanely silly tweet i mean it that of <laughs> all of the things out yeah was i mean but, uh, but ma- many many people you know i mean many outlets did i mean did, uh, unsurprisingly and, and and i'm not trying to to knock anybody but Many Go people ahead. ran with the no Donald Trump. You're not allowed to do this. Like you know, articles <laughs> in response. Um, but it's like this is the best thing to ever happen to Saturday Night Live because actually it's like Donald Trump may be the only person who cares what's on Saturday Night Live besides besides you and your lovely fiance this year. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, right? that's that. Well, listen, the Ringer office uh, with Bill Simmons as our boss is very pro SNL place. Yes, Bill plays in business. Um, I'm, I'm but yeah, out. it's been a long time since I paid this much attention to it. That's for sure. Yeah. It's, um, I, it's like that old it, AJ labeling thing where he said, you know, people would be mad at the American communist party. And he said the way to get everybody to quit the communist party is to print their minutes in full in the newspaper. Cause everybody'd be <laughs> yeah. so, everybody'd be so bored. I feel that's what this is. If it sounds mildly scandalous, just watch that live and you'll be cured of that right away. Nobody oh, will watch yeah, it again. Totally great. I will say one more thing for the, for, at the, at the risk of, at the risk of, straw manning this argument mm. it's sort of Love funny a good straw man go for it's it it's sort of it, it it's sort of ironic to me that trump is blissfully unaware of entertainment's exemption from any sort of legal <laughs> test yes when that is bait when that is that's the argument used over and over again to defend fox news the only channel he likes watching right where they say you know whenever anybody goes after hannity it's oh no no he's not news he's entertainment the news is the news happens until eight o'clock and then we go to the entertainment segment of the sh- of the of the channel yeah like, the, that the the that defense is just always at the ready for anybody that wants to defend that channel against their their wilder excesses um, and and that's just uh, you you would think that Trump would have caught that headline that that ar- that line of argument you know on Breitbart at some point, but I guess not. Yeah, I mean, was this like? I mean, Donald Trump has been the has been the subject of parody sketches for his entire campaign and presidency, so that couldn't have been what 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 triggered it. Here was it on like Weekend Update? Was that was he was like mistaking as news or thinking was like? No, 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 no. It was the parody. I mean, I think the it was biggest the Alec thing Baldwin was Baldwin thing. 
it was the it's a wonderful life that posited he had never that he had never become president and i think that i think that that there was just it was it was it really was just a a you know one hit after another like every joke you could make at the expense of trump and his administration and and you know under the guise of of christmas and and referencing a classic movie and 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 you know the 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 implication being that the entire viewing public would be happy if trump had never been president coupled with all the things that are obviously going on behind the scenes that are driving him to tweet at this pace um i i, I just don't think i i just think it, i just think he he took exception to put it kindly the uh just by the way think of that and it's a wonderful life sketch Oh my God, it's it's like the bottom of the barrel of comedy. It's a wonderful <laughs> life. Yeah, I mean, dude, that's just <laughs> that's not that's not fresh, you know. That's not that's not cutting edge. That's that is like the that is the comedy drawer of you know 1985 that just got emptied out. Again, I didn't watch it. So it was funny. By the way, I was thinking this: if Trump wanted the truly creative attack on SNL. If he wanted to attack it in the Dan Quayle, Murphy Brown way, what would he do? Like this, you know, driving cat, this cat who drives a car, setting a bad example for America's uh, motorists. This lawyer who defends you in court, you really should get better representation than this unfrozen lawyer that was dug up in the Arctic Circle. Sorry, these are a little dated too. Yeah, it has been a while since you watched yeah. it. <laughs> Go back to the Phil Hartman era. You know, yeah. uh, I'm trying to think what else. Um what is uh what is a good one? You know, these uh This samurai shouldn't be cutting things, it's very dangerous. Is that, is that too <laughs> yeah, we're going with cheeseburger, cheeseburger, cheeseburger. Yeah, there you yeah. go. You shouldn't eat that many cheeseburgers. I don't think that, that would be Donald Trump's particular attack. These two Teutonic uh, you know, supermen are probably not a good way to not a good way to work out. You should have a safer kind of Pilates workout. <laughs> all right. I think I think we're good all there. All right, David. The topic number three access journalism. Elena Plot wrote a piece in the Atlantic recently in which he quoted a number of great passages from Richard Ben Kramer's book, What It Takes to Defend So-Called Access Journalism. Kramer, uh, ben, Richard Ben Kramer had access, of course, to people like George H.W. Bush and Michael Dukakis and Gary Hart back in 1988 and wrote a great book about them. Uh, therefore, Plot argued, maybe access journalism is not so bad after all. And then Libby Watson wrote a big reposte over at Splinter. Uh, I thought we should have a little chat about access journalism because this this is something i think that has been kind of a continuous theme especially over the trump years uh mm -hmm. you know in the maggie haberman jonathan swan olivia nuzzi reporting on trump reporting on the white house kind of thing first the my first point here is i'm not really sure how useful a term access journalism is um you know when we when we get into this as a general term right is this mm -hmm. this just means interviewing your subject essentially like talking to people. Um, yeah. It's sort of like long form, you know, it's like, and it just feels like there's, you know, on the one hand, access journalism could mean your, you know, most credulous, shittiest celebrity profile. On the other hand, it could be Steven Roderick writing about Johnny Depp, right? Yeah. So it's sort of yeah. like, it's weird to argue about a term that could mean almost anything, both defending it and then ripping it. <sighs> Yeah, I think that's I think that's that's the right way to look at it. I mean, I think and it's it's useful to to look at to read journalism uh with a skeptical eye. Yes. Um and to question and to always question um you know what what potential trade-offs there may have been. Never assume that you know if you don't, but 
you know, I think that at its at its worst, when people talk about access journalism, yeah, I mean, there, I mean, I we see it. I feel like more frequently in the sports world, where you you know you get a you get a big profile with a major athlete, uh, and there's a clear you know there's a clear there's there's the terms are set in advance, right? There's some sort of implicit trade off, mm-hmm. um, and there's a difference between that and you know having a good text message relationship with a with someone with a you know well seated in the white house um there's always going to be people that i mean everybody has sources right i mean so just having a source doesn't make doesn't doesn't mean that you're doing journalism the wrong way someone just having someone on your on speed dial doesn't mean you're doing journalism the wrong way <laughs> but probably um, no <laughs> i don't think so but that would not be but that. if you're but if you're making concessions if you're making concessions that are i mean if every if every if every interview is based on some um, is based on some implicit concession, then yeah, it's a problem. Yeah, I mean, it's like I think when I read Watson's thing, like the the kind of access journalism she's talking about is shitty access journalism, right? Mm-hmm. That's why starting with this defense of the term of of this kind of nebulous term, you know, that plot did in the Atlantic is just so weird to me because. I don't I don't know what that means and you're kind of defending everything. I mean, first of all, it's a little weird to write about this about what it takes, which is a fantastic book. Right. And that Kramer was, you know, had all this time to write, in fact, published four years after that election was over. Mm-hmm. You know, and and he's you know, those portraits I think were probably mostly liked by the participants, but they were big, big, thorny warts and all portraits that showed those guys and how they, you know, made decisions and how they came to be and all that kind of stuff. And written in this kind of really interesting style and everything. So it's just, it's just weird to say, like, Richard Ben Kramer wrote a good book and interviewed the presidential candidates. Therefore, anybody, you know, therefore, this may be a good thing after all. Well, of course it is, right? It's like saying, you know, Gate Talese wrote a good profile, so maybe long-form journalism is good. I did think when you say having things on speed dial and the implicit compromises, I just think it's so interesting because all those things happen, I'm sure, a billion times a day in journalism. But I think that people often don't quite understand how they happen. And they right. often assume they're happening. Like, you know, they're just like they read a New York Times piece uh, or a piece in the Washington Post or in Axios or Politico and they find it wanting. And they just start imputing bad motives or, or, or trade offs mm-hmm. that happened. And they right. actually and they probably didn't. Sometimes a journalist yeah. just sucked on that particular day. Sometimes a journalist just sucks overall. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes the person just didn't write it right. Sometimes they didn't get story. There, there's just all kinds of ways to do it. I thought there was this interesting recode interview between White House correspondents Haberman and uh, Jonathan Swan from Axios, who I just mentioned. Um, Swan and Axios, you remember, were pilloried in the Axios journalism uh, zone uh, yeah. correctly a while back when he asked Donald Trump whether he was thinking of canceling <laughs> birthright citizenship and kind of implied that Donald Trump could just sort of do that. Mm-hmm. Um here is, but here's some interesting things. Here's Swan uh, talking about even when you have quote unquote access to the Trump White House, just how tricky it is to cover it. So the first thing I do, just as a general principle, is if I'm told something by a senior administration mm-hmm. official, it's I assume it's false until mm-hmm. proven otherwise. Okay. And I, I've just had to take that approach. <laughs> okay. I'm now hedging in a way that is almost comical. So like I recently broke the story that Trump had settled on Pat Cipollone for mm-hmm. his White House counsel. Mm-hmm. And when I wrote that story, I think I published it on a Saturday afternoon, 
I knew that Pat Cipollone, the fact I had was that Pat Cipollone had, had started filling out his paperwork. Right. So I didn't write, my lead sentence wasn't, you know, I could pull it up now, but it wasn't Donald Trump has decided. Right. It was, I literally wrote, Pat Cipollone has begun filling out his paperwork, <laughs> but, you know, for this, because mm-hmm. I knew that that was a fact. Okay. The sentence Donald Trump has decided, I made a big mistake early on. It, it was My story was correct. Mm-hmm. I, I wrote I broke the story that he was pulling out of the Paris climate deal. Mm-hmm. But I made the big mistake of saying Donald Trump has decided because, yes, you know, he told people he decided. But then after I published my story, he spoke to a White House official and he said, what do you think I should do? Right. And, but I thought that was so interesting have- because here's Swan, often denounced as an access journalist you know, White House, you know, friendly journalist, however you want to say it, talking about the fact that he can't believe anything that anybody in the White House tells him. And he is, you know, sort of terrified to write a sentence because the president either doesn't know what he thinks or is trying to, would, would then, as they say later in this podcast, go back and undermine the journalist by purposefully changing his mind, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, that White House is so strange and treacherous to report on, even though it leaks like a sieve often. Um, I just thought that was fascinating. Here's another thing was um, that I think often gets sort of misunderstood in these things. Swan talks about a lot of people thinking sort of how you, you must be spoon fed. This was, you were spoon fed the scoop. This story was planted, right? You often hear that on Twitter. Here he is talking about how journalists get information out of the White House. The funny thing about this whole access idea it's a serious conversation, and there are always tensions when you're doing up-close reporting. But the, the irony is sucking up, like being sycophantic, actually doesn't get you anywhere. People need to be slightly afraid of you. They need to know that you have information, and that's the way you leverage people. It's not by saying, oh, you know, how wonderful are you, et cetera, et cetera, because if that was the case, we would see bigger sycophants breaking a lot more news. And his sort of point there is like, if if the access journalists were the ones that, um, it, you know, were so good at sucking up, and they were the ones who were getting everything, why wouldn't all the Fox News people just break all the news from the Trump White House, right? Why would yeah. why is it people like Haberman and him and stuff that are you know essentially finding things out, playing off the rivalries, figuring out the fissures in the White House, and sort of figuring out how to ferret out information that way? I mean, I think I think that the kind of skeptical answer is that they know what questions to ask or they're more interested in pursuing stories that yeah that have more skillful resonance yeah <laughs> more skillful good journalists yeah yeah more skillful and all, i mean listen i mean there, it's not like it's not like like you know even birthright citizenship i mean i, I mean, maybe that has a little more resonance with the fox news audience but there's some some of those stories that are that um you know, the Fox just wouldn't be covering if they weren't being raised by other media outlets. So, uh, I mean, I think that that, I mean, that that's that's partly the answer. Um, and also, I think that, you know, it's it, Trump likes, I mean, it, as anyone, it, like any, every president in history just has personality, I mean, you know, has there, there are personalities that he prefers regardless of the outlet. And those are the people that he sort of, um, whether it's by their, because of their outlet and their stature or just because he, he likes them as people, he, he sees value in, and, uh, you know, and responding to those people or talking to those people or, you know, maybe it's just as simple as having, you know, the right connection of with someone standing next to Trump that you can get that sort of access. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think that I think that it's worth it's worth 
you know, just pausing on Axios for a minute because they do do a, a different sort of access journalism, and it doesn't mean that they don't do a good job. But I think that I think that what really complicates people's opinion I and mean, feelings about Axios is that their their target audience, just like Politico, you know, is is a very I mean, despite what you know any amount of success they have out there, but it's I mean they're targeted at this very kind of like DC intelligentsia yep. um, audience and. That kind of no, regards I mean, politics as a game, you know, yeah. And I think that, game. and I think that there's, I think that for Trump, who's, who's, you know, in particular, but for, for I'm sure every president going forward, there's a certain safety in that, right? You, you can go and sit down for an interview, and you might get surprised with a question about a policy proposal because, you know, like, like happened with Trump, um, you know, because someone heard something that you didn't know had gotten out or whatever. But I don't think, but uh, you know, they, it, I, you don't get the impression that they have the, the, you know, they're gonna they're going to pin you down on some like deep moral question or anything. Um, they're interested in the horse race of it. And, and, the, and there's a, yeah. And the scoreboard, right. You know, yeah, wait, yeah scoop, exactly. Right. This is a scoop. Yeah. Birthright citizenship. Yeah. He's thinking about this. This is a scoop. And we saw that by the way it was, by the way they pitched it. I mean, by the way they, they released it after the interview happened, you know, I mean, it's a, um, yeah. I mean, I, I think that, that that's a, diff- that's a different kind of conversation than, than the conversations about, you know, uh, the 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 best versions of access journalism, you know, what it takes or whatever. Yeah, I mean, it's just, I mean, you, you mentioned before also on what it takes about the length of time that he had to write the book. I mean, again, you said it. People, you know, most a lot of people commenting on Twitter don't know how the best journalism works. Um, but if you have that kind of time to write it, and also if you're if you have a if you're if you're a respectable writer at a good outlet or with a good you know a good publisher. Um, and you're going to, and, and you're going to write the P and you're going to write this thing and you're going to write it well, then it becomes, uh, an interest of the subject to, to participate and to, and to have their, have, you know, and to contribute to the, to the, to the narrative. Right. And we saw that with, wasn't even with Michael Wolf that, that Donald Trump kind of called him in the midnight hour and was like, can I please be in the book? Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, people understand that getting their voice in there is important. That's not necessarily access journalism, although what it takes did involve a lot of access, but you know, if you're going to report out a story to that degree, then even if someone says no the first four times you call, when they realize what you have on the fifth call, then they're probably going to, then they're more likely to to give you some time. Oh, absolutely. Oh, no, that's that's totally right. By the way, let's never, let's promise never to use the term access journalism after this segment. I know I wanted to do this <laughs> segment, but I already hate it. I'm just so mad. Can we it's, just change the name of the podcast to access journalism? Yeah. <laughs> How about access, access colon journalism? Ooh. Is that, does that work? Ooh. I just I thought Longform was going to be my least favorite podcast. I mean, my least my least favorite podcast. Whoops, <laughs> my least podcast. favorite my least favorite term of all time. But um, but I think we have a new winner. I did I do find this funny, which is I think whenever I see one of these things flare up, I sort of think I just what I think is that that doesn't get said is there is this wonderful symbi- symbiotic relationship right between the and this is the last time I'm ever using it access journalist and the kick ass. Uh, uncompromising blogger because the the latter needs the facts often that the former unearths right even if they unearth them in a kind of clumsy you know not not as re- well written and presented as you'd like kind of way mm-hmm. and i thought swan interestingly talked about that a little bit in the recode interview and here is here's a clip of that i think a lot of the the criticism is phony and and some of the people who've criticized me, some of the publications who've tried to suggest that, you know, my work is devoid of public value, 
they're quite insistent on aggregating my reporting when it's negative. You know, I, I reported recently that Trump wants to cut off funding to Puerto Rico and two of the publications that wrote, you know, that I'm this worthless hack, you know, uh, aggregated it. So and that's fine. Like, I don't really like, you know, I read all the criticism. Like, I, I, I take yeah, yeah. it. Yeah, I do. I okay. read it all. And, and and I think like you have to. And by the way, it's good. It keeps you humble. And it, it's good to get your head kicked in every now and again. It's good to get your teeth kicked in. And, um, and yeah, like I screw up all the time. I try not to. But- <laughs> I, I love that though. But, but he, he is right about this narrow thing, which is, I have seen many uh, a journalist like him denounced as completely worthless, and then they break a scoop that makes Trump look bad, and then there's just it just goes right into the aggregation. You know, like oh well, he must have stumbled into this one. It's like no, he probably realized that was a good a scoop too. You know, <laughs> like he, yeah. he he probably you know he is he, he probably you know since that was news and understood why Trump threatened to cut off funding to Puerto Rico was news. Just like the birthright citizenship thing, the other way. It's funny, but uh, but I thought that was a decent point. By the way, I looked up uh, Maureen Dowd reviewed what it takes when it came out. It's oh, on, no. yeah, no, it's in, in the Washington Monthly of all places, and it was a fascinating review because at the time she had been up to, I believe, that point she had been the uh, White House correspondent for the uh, for the Times covering George W. Bush's White House, George H. Mm-hmm. W. Bush's White House, and she writes this review, um, kind of like. You know, kind of, kind of lightly complaining. Admits there's some good stuff in it, but kind of like r- lightly complaining about all the psychoanalyzing that's in that book. And it's and it really is this. It is kind of a version of the of the journalistic argument. We say she is the boots on the ground reporter. She knows H.W. She's been. She knows the facts. And here's this kind of big footing guy coming in and writing at this le- new journalism kind of level. Um, and then, of course, the irony is that Maureen Dowd would then shortly after that become a columnist at the New York Times and <laughs> right. psychoanalyze with the best of them, uh, often in, in high style. So I just I just do love that. I think it's like where it sort of depends on where you are at your station. You know, you stick up yeah. for whatever practice you are you're doing. And then the other guy is, you know, the complete schmuck. So anyway, I thought that was funny. Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, I think at the end of the day, it's. It, it, you can defend access journalism all you want. You can ah, defend anything. Ah, no, don't say it again. You said it again. Oh, sorry. Well, the the point is you can defend anything that you want as long as you just define it the way you want to define it. And uh, we've all learned a lot from our president in this era. Just change the <laughs> definitions of things. Just keep using collusion, collusion in the wrong journalistic way. Journalistic <laughs> collusion, David. All right. That's the press yeah. box for this week. Thanks to Jim Cunningham, our producer, Chris Almeida, with research. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. We are, we're back next week on Christmas Day, December 25th, and we're off the 1st of January. So we'll see you then, and then back again in the new year with more hot takes on the media. See you, David. See you later, Brian. David yeah. It's good to get your head kicked in every now and again. It's good to get your teeth kicked in. Right? Yeah. Is it actually that important? Yeah. Uh, I thought we should have a little chat about this lawyer who defends you in court. You really should get better representation than this unfrozen lawyer that was yeah. dug up in the Arctic Circle. I think you're right. And there's a difference between that and, you know, having a good text message relationship with a complete schmuck. 
For sure. Anybody care that much? For sure. This is the greatest podcast that's ever existed. And how could we have known? Question mark? Yeah. 